Hey listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Vittoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I find the monarchy fascinating, but I am most definitely not a monarchist. I also touch on political movements, gender politics, and much more. And I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear. So if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism. So one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and see grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, or you just want to say hello, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. I also have a blog space where I share photos, uh, sources, short summaries of episodes, and episode links. And that space is findinghistorypodcast.blogspot.com. Hello, all you ghosts and ghouls and goblins galore, and welcome to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today I'm going to talk to you about the murder of the Knights Templar. Yay! If you don't know, the Knights Templar were a Catholic, Christian, whatever you want to call them, a military order that was founded in 1118 in Jerusalem, and they were active uh, for quite a while until about 1312. They are closely tied with the Crusades as they went from being a very small order to being some of the most skilled fighters of Christendom. Uh, therefore, they have this like grand legacy of being like true defenders of the Christian faith. And there are like so many myths about them that are just like far from true. So that's why earlier I was like a Catholic, Christian, whatnot. Really, it's just like all of Christendom. They actually should probably be referred to as like Knights of Christendom rather than a Catholic order. But I think because the Pope was involved a whole lot, they're just going to have that Catholic title to them. And at the, like some of the articles that I read were like, oh, you know, they're a Catholic order or, oh, they're a Christian order. Let's just whatever. They're Knights of Christ, I guess. So obviously today people still go like totally ape shit for the Crusades and uh, Templars history. So yeah, Templars are a pretty big deal and their murder was a pretty big deal too. I was reading, you know, when I was starting my research, I was just like, uh, it's, it's so interesting to me reading it, how they just went from this like respected, you know, untouchable force to basically being obliterated. So how did they go from being super adored by everyone to being destroyed, more or less? Well, I'm going to tell you all about that. If you are a regular listener of mine, you know I have stated before um, that I am never doing an episode or uh, it would probably have to be an episode series uh, based on the Crusades. For one, it's a lot of history, and unless I'm being paid in big money, 
I'm not researching it. Like, <laughs> it would just take me so long to research everything, and I'm not going to do that. The process would just take forever, and to be honest, I'm not quite sure where I'd even begin, because I feel like to do a, an accurate retelling of the Crusades, you'd have to probably go back at least a, up like 50 or like 100 years prior to that to like understand the political climate between the East and the West. And you guys, I wish I had the time and I wish I had the money. I do not. I can't. So I'm not going to do that. I'm sure there's fantastic podcasts out there that can explain that history a lot better than I could. Second, I like low-key hate the Crusades and just Honestly, I just view it as like European terrorism. That's, you know, that's not to say that there weren't any bad people in the East or anything like that. Uh, but part of the pursuit of control over the Holy Land was trade and money. Like the rich from the, like the rich wealthy class in the West were starting to dress a whole lot better and import some quality goods from involvement in the East. It's curious to see this, like, expanse of wealth and, uh, I guess, a quality of goods go up as the Crusades are continuing on as well. And I, I feel like maybe, I can't speak for people of the Middle Ages, but perhaps uh, people saw the import of goods as it being, like, a success that obviously they were succeeding in their you know, quest for the Holy Land and control of the Holy Land. And, you know, because there were so many goods coming in, that means they were making a lot of money. Everything was great. The economy was booming, blah, blah, blah. But when you really think about it, too, there's like, it's kind of got a capitalist angle, too, because what was the price of all these goods? And the price of all these goods was bloodshed. You know, bodily labor and sacrifice clothed the wealthy. And Again, you know, it's it's a complicated issue and they were, um, I'm definitely not one of those people that were like, whoa, there's two sides to every story, but um, I don't know, guys, I don't like the Crusades. I really could rant about it forever, but uh, I'm not going to do my homework. I should say I'm not going to do more homework. I've done homework. I'm not going to do more homework. Anyway, not going to get too much into it. I just know it's complicated. And the whole thing just gives me bad vibes. With that said, though, I did want to explore the fall of the Templars a bit more. I actually first heard of their fall in... Okay, you're going to laugh. And um, I actually had to watch this again this past week because uh, it's been coming up a lot when I've been doing my Templar research. And I'm just like... Oh my god, this is dumb. But okay, so like I like I have to watch this bad movie. Uh so uh Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code is when I first heard of the the execution, the mass execution, mass murder of the Knights Templar. And okay, I haven't read the book and I definitely don't plan to. Uh I love Tom Hanks. That is he's a cool dude, but this movie <laughs> was a mess. Um they didn't even like, I think when, so I don't know in the book if he says this or if if they gloss over that as well, but uh, they mentioned the Knights Templar being mass murdered on Friday the 13th, and thus that's where uh, Friday the 13th got their origin from, which is not totally true. But um, 
Also, he doesn't mention the fact that uh, the French king, Philip IV, uh, fucking murdered the Knights Templar. I think he says it was like a an inside church job, which the church was involved. I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, yeah, so all around lies. You know, one of many lies that he tells about the Templars. Okay, real quick, I have to tell this part of the story that also has been like kind of bugging me. Uh, so at the beginning of the movie, uh, Tom Hanks's character, uh, <laughs> who's a symbologist, which isn't a thing, but it sounds like a cool job, but whatever. Uh, it should be a thing. I don't know. Um, so he's doing that like lecture and he's showing like all these images and he shows like an image of like somebody that looks like they're in the KKK. And, uh, you know, he's like, okay, well, what do you think when you see this image? And everyone's like, hatred, racism, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, actually, they're a priest from Spain. But it's like, okay, but that's not, like, that much different. uh, Because Spain has white supremacists and, or white supremacist, like, ideologies and, They are just as guilty as any other European nation for mass genocides and, like, colonialism and the fucking slave trade. Uh, And so I'm like, it's not really that much different. And a lot of white supremacist groups have, like, adopted traits and, like, apparel and, like, styles and, and all that jazz and ideology from... European religious orders and you know the Knights Templar and I will mention a little bit more information about the Knights Templar and that tie with white supremacy probably a bit towards the end of this uh, conversation but yeah so yeah when he's explaining that like oh it's not KKK it's just you know a monk in Spain and I'm like okay but guess where white supremacists come from Europe like, you're really going to tell me it's tomato, not tomato? Potato, not potato? Okay. Anyway, back to our scheduled programming. So, Friday the 13th, uh, on Friday the 13th, October 1307, that was not the day the Templars were executed. Uh, however, it was the date that uh, King Philip IV uh, of France ordered scores of French Templars to be arrested. An arrest warrant was sent out, and it stated that Do ne pas content, nous avons des ennemis de la foi dans le royaume. God is not pleased. We have enemies of the faith in the kingdom. And from that moment, shit really hit the fan. Many people think the Templars were the actual origin of Friday the 13th. Uh, but, you know, they're just one of many stories, uh... But not like the soul story of like the soul origin story of Friday the 13th. I didn't do too much digging, but there were like a couple of other things mentioned that kind of predated the uh, Templars. And one of them was uh, from Viking lore. And it was about uh, 12 Norse gods having a dinner party and Loki showing up uninvited as the 13th guest. The Knights Templar also came up when I was doing research for uh, one of my first episodes uh, for this podcast, which was on uh, Edward II and La Louvre de France, Isabella of France. 
So her father was Philip IV, who had murdered the Templars. And uh, I remember, like, reading that connection, and I was like, well, holy shit. Okay, so Isabella uh, also, uh, I feel like Isabella was probably a daddy's girl. Uh, she blabbed to her daddy about her sisters-in-law having an affair. And this resulted in both women having their heads shaved and being imprisoned uh, for life. And the two knights that were um, accused of having the affair. Um, so this affair probably actually really did happen. But the two knights uh, who were accused, uh, they were just brutally tortured. I think I, I had read one account where they were skinned and had lead poured on them. Like really fucked up shit. Anyway, I kind of just got bad vibes from like Isabella of France after reading that because uh, her father might not have even found out about it or known about it had she not said something about it. So she's a fucking snitch and a lot of people like her. And I mean, I, I think there's a, you know, not you know, monarchy was not great. I'm not saying she was worse than the people around her, but I think there are cooler women out there to appreciate. That's just my opinion. She was just like, loyal to her dumb dick daddy and I, I find that boring and unfortunately that's kind of a theme with like uh you know medieval women in power is they their power is aligned with uh male power with the patriarchy and so I get she's not like alone in this like dumb dad energy but um but yeah I don't know she's not my jam guys I, I don't have a high opinion of her if you do want more information on uh, the Tour de Nel scandal, uh, you could check out that episode because I do uh, touch base on that. Or uh, there is a podcast I really like that has an amazing episode on it. Let me see here. So it's True Crime Medieval and they just talk about, you know, uh, murder mysteries and just like uh, crazy things that kind of happened in the medieval times and uh, it's a really amazing podcast. So true crime medieval, definitely check that out if you want to know more. One more thing on that. So a lot of, this is like the, the longest intro ever. A lot of, um, people like to assume a trend that I've seen. A lot of people like to assume that people didn't know any better in the middle ages or they weren't aware or they were dumb or they just, you know, they were naive in a certain way. Um, but you know, in, in certain cases I could see that, but when you are, I feel like people don't give medieval people enough credit. Like they were still smart people and they were, you know, advantageous and ambitious and all of that. And I, I'm pretty sure a lot of them were pretty aware of their surroundings and their actions and that their actions had consequences. So, you know, first I, I I feel like so many people just dismiss it like, oh, she didn't know any better. And I'm like, no, look at her actions that followed. She was a smart, cunning woman. Like she knew. She fucking knew. She knew. Like you're doing her a disservice by saying she didn't know and was naive. But if you if you study her and you study her actions, you know that she wasn't stupid. She was fully aware of her actions and her consequences. So just my two cents again. This whole podcast is just my two cents. Like, I'm just going to change the name to my two cents history. <laughs> so, this might be a little bit more accurate. Anyway. 
So the brief history that I read on at the time when I was doing that episode, uh, the trials were just really wild and intense and the rumors that they started around the Templars were fucking nuts. And a black cat is involved. Actually, a lot of cats are involved. And Friday the 13th is involved. And I'm like, well, what what better topic for an episode on Halloween or to air on Halloween? Like just the most wonderful time of the year. I fucking love Halloween. It's the best time. Hands down. Fair warning before I get really started. There is a lot of homophobia mentioned in this episode and some details of torture and murder. I also touch a bit on anti-Semitism because, well, it's medieval time, so it comes up. What would medieval Europe be without anti-Semitism? Probably a hell of a lot happier place to live. I'll also be touching base briefly on a bit of Templar history before they got executed. So I won't go into a full history, but I will discuss kind of like the basic facts of Templar history and then right to murder. So grab yourself some candy and enjoy. The beginning of this story starts with the First Crusade. I know, I know, I said I wasn't going to talk about the Crusades at all, but here we are. I'm not going into a lot of detail, but I am going to go into detail because I feel like this is, you know, it's important to their story. Anyway, so the First Crusade uh, took place from 1096 to 1099. Jerusalem had been under Muslim rule for hundreds of years uh, prior to this First Crusade, and by the 11th century, the Seljuk Empire had a stronghold in the region. The Seljuks were a Turco-Persian Sunni Muslim empire that had a vast amount of land from the Middle East, uh, like Asia Minor and the outskirts of India. And after their takeover, the region threatened like local Christian populations uh, so and Christian pilgrims from the West and the Byzantine Empire. In 1095, Byzantine Emperor Alexios I Komnenos requested military support from the Catholic Church to defeat the Seljuk Empire. And about a year later, Pope Urban II supported the Byzantines' request for military assistance, and he urged all Christians to partake in an armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Barf. Ugh. Like, a thousand years later, all this shit sounds too familiar. Oh, God, embarrassing. So Pope Urban II was like, all you true Christians, if, like, I'm calling to you... If you are of the true faith and the true Christianity and blah, 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 to go and fight and defend the Holy Land. And, you know, this resulted in people being like, fuck yeah, anarchy. Like, we love it so much. Lots of dumb peasant energy. And for those who don't know, dumb peasant energy, or what I also call DPE, is when someone from a lower socioeconomic standing believes those in power, i.e. the rich people in power, uh, you know, got their back and they completely support them. Like, picture a peasant, you know, peasant on the side of the street or whatnot, saying, God bless the king, while the peasant starves to death and the king eats gold. That's dumb peasant energy. And don't get me wrong, I love peasants. And I think they likely had the best stories and were some of the best people, However, dumb peasant energy was real, and it's still present today. 
someone who I believe is an awesome, amazing peasant, uh, who you should check out if you, if you have like a TikTok or whatnot, um, is Greedy Peasant. Please check out Greedy Peasant. They are so fucking funny. So this dumb peasant energy resulted in a movement known as the People's Crusade, in which a whole lot of peasants um, and also low-ranking knights organized and set off for Jerusalem in their own podunk army. The peasant populations had been afflicted by famine and disease for many years prior to the crusade. For a lot of them, a crusade was an escape from their hard lives. Where do I even begin with this logic? Like, all I can say is generational trauma is a very scary and very real thing. And it's pretty devastating to see this, like, nearly a thousand years ago. Like, what the fuck? And it gets much worse. The People's Crusade was led by Peter the Hermit, who was a French monk who was known to have been, like, a very charismatic public speaker. Uh, I kind of imagine the evil religious guy from Game of Thrones. I think the actor's name is Jonathan Price, and he's the one who he dressed like a serf, like he had like a potato sack with a hole in it, and he didn't wear shoes, and that was his outfit. But like he held a lot of power because he was persuasive and manipulative, manipulative as fuck. Um, you, you know who I'm talking about. Like that guy was evil. But like anyway, this guy. This guy was definitely that guy, and he told these peasants, like, everything they wanted to hear. On their way to the Holy Land, the People's Crusade brutally attacked Jewish communities along the Rhine River, resulting in what is now known as the Rhineland Massacres. They would stop at different communities and murder Jews. Some of those that survived were forced to convert, and some refused, and were driven to suicide. Estimates vary at how many Jewish people were killed, but the numbers range from 2,000 to 12,000. These massacres are often seen as the first in a sequence of anti-Semitic events in Europe, which culminated in the Holocaust. I think what a lot of people choose to fail to understand is that the Holocaust didn't just happen overnight. Studying the Middle Ages is a trip because... It's a bad trip because it just no matter what I read, no matter what I look up, no matter what the subject is, who I'm reading about, like anti-Semitism and violence against uh, Jews is just constant and it's always there. And the Holocaust was really just a long time coming. And this also makes sense, you know, reading this, this makes total sense that uh, so much unfortunately Alex should be mentioning this quite a bit um so much like so many white supremacists identify with the Templars and I do believe the Nazi movement uh identified with not the Templars it was the uh I believe it was the Teutonic Knights I might be saying that incorrectly but they definitely idolize that and it's disgusting, but yeah, so the Crusades definitely had, you know, anti-Semitic vibes in it, which is another reason why I think they're fucking trash, but here we are. Without doing too much further digging into the People's Crusade, uh, I do know it was fairly short-lived. Uh, as I said earlier, they were like a podunk army, so once they had gotten to Jerusalem, I believe they were like wiped out in battle, um, but I'm not 100% sure which one. But that movement ended in 1096. Uh, 
So jumping back to the end of the First Crusade, which was uh, 1099. So the West wins in 1099 and now controls the Holy Land and blah, 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 blah. While Jerusalem was under Christian control, the journey to Jerusalem was not, and pilgrimages could be incredibly dangerous to partake in. Even post-Crusades, it didn't really get much better. Sometimes people didn't return, and arrangements upon their possible deaths would have to be made prior to takeoff. Christian pilgrims from the West risked encounters with bandits and highwaymen, sometimes resulting in theft, rape, or even death. In 1119, French knight Hugh de Payne approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem, who was another French dude playing kingship in Jerusalem. Well, I think he was French. He could have been Frankish. I, is that the same thing? I don't know. Another thing I don't really quite understand is how the kingdom of Jerusalem was really formed, uh, so I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, Hugh approaches Baldwin and is like, so... These bandits are like so annoying and we should create like a monastic order to protect these poor pilgrims. And Baldwin agreed and in 1120, Hugh and seven other knights swore to defend Christian pilgrims and took vows of poverty. They lived together in a closed community with an established code of conduct. Baldwin II allowed them to establish a Templar's headquarters in a wing of the royal palace on the Temple Mount in the captured Al-Aqsa Mosque. Its full name is Al-Majet Al-Aqsa, which translates from Arabic into English as the Farthest Mosque. The name refers to a chapter in the Quran called Al-Isra, or the Night Journey, in which it is said that Muhammad traveled from Mecca to the Farthest Mosque and then up to heaven. It is the third holiest site in Islam. When the Crusaders took control, it became part palace and part horse stable, the Crusaders did not refer to it as Al-Aqsa, but rather the Temple of Solomon. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem is important in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In Jewish tradition, it is the location of Solomon's Temple. And there, I believe there was a second temple, but it was destroyed by the Romans. And I think the Dome Rock was built on the site of that second temple. But don't quote me on that. In fact... I'm a little confused as to the general layout of this area, and I kind of think the best way to look at it, though, um, is that this site holds a lot of spiritual and historical significance to people of these particular faiths. It's a very, very important site to a lot of people, and as of right now, the area is occupied by Israeli military. Initially, the order was not wealthy, despite having monarch approval. The order relied on uh, the few financial resources from the original knights and donations. Their emblem was of two knights riding a single horse, not to place emphasis on brotherhood, but to emphasize on the order's poverty. The knights were to eat their meals in silence and were only allowed meat three times a week. They were required to take a vow of chastity and not touch any woman, and I don't. I think that extended to... Uh, like, they weren't allowed to have any sort of personal relationships with women, even if it was, uh, like, non-sexual. So that includes, like, members of their family, like their mothers or sisters. I don't think they could stay in contact with any woman, let alone sleep with a woman. 
and women were forbidden from entering the temple order, as were children, though in the case of male children, they were encouraged to come back when they reached uh, the age of maturity. What age was that? Well, I don't really know, because I couldn't really find any mention of, like, how old one had to be to enter the order. They would, however, have to have come from a noble house. Knights Templar did not have the power to knight someone, uh, so one would have already had to have been a knight in order to apply. And I've mentioned this on this I've mentioned this before on this podcast that uh, typically only nobility had access to knighthood. The order did have a sort of like sister organization, um, but I also think this might have predated uh, the Templar just by a few years. Um, It was known as Knights Hospitaller, and their original purpose was to provide medical aid and housing for traveling uh, Christian pilgrims. In the beginning, they were based out of an actual hospital that had uh, two branches of men providing support as well as women. Eventually, they became more militaristic, uh, though I do think they still provided hospitality services. Uh, Unlike the Templars, they still exist in several modified forms in many countries today. Uh, From the Roman Catholic Sovereign Military Order of St. John to the Volunteer St. John's Ambulance Brigade. The Templars did not remain poor for that long, and many curious patrons took an interest in them. Bernard of Clairvaux, who later became a saint, was a leading church figure and French abbot who was a big supporter and encourager of the Second Crusade. He was also an uncle to uh, one of the original knights. So, yes, the Templars were poor-ish initially, but they weren't exactly self-made, as they had powerful connections. In 1135, Bernard of Clairvaux is said to have stated this. A Templar knight is truly a fearless knight, and secure on every side, for his soul is protected by the armor of faith, just as his body is protected by the armor of steel. He is thus doubly armed, and need fear neither demons nor men. Bernard used his charm and influence to spread good word about the Templars and encourage good Christians to support this order. Everyone started to donate to the Templars, including those from lower uh, socioeconomic classes to the rich and wealthy. They all gave what they could to ensure that they would have a good time in the afterlife. And I'm pretty sure this is still kind of like a common thing amongst Christians, or or like at least like Christian-like religions of donating a part of your own revenue uh, to the church. I, I guess I shouldn't say Christian-like. Like, I think Scientology won't let you join unless you give them big money. Anyway, donations came in all forms, such as land, horses, military equipment, and food were just some of the most common donations. There were also instances of people uh, where people volunteered their services to the Templars. Like, imagine offering an unpaid... Uh, internship to the Templars, which I'm I'm sure many men would have jumped at that opportunity. Oh, and uh, boys from noble houses offered their services to the Templars. Now this benefit is really when they started to amass like superpower. In 1139, Pope Innocent's uh, papal bull 
uh, let's see if I get this right, omne datum optimum, exempted the order from obedience to local laws. Now, this meant that the Templars could pass freely through all borders, were not required to pay any taxes, and were exempt from all authority except that of the Pope. I mean, this is a really huge deal. They were like, they were given infinite power. There were three classes within the Templars. There were knights, sergeants, and chaplains. The knights were the cavalry and the military fighters. They wore white surcoats with a red cross in the middle. They only they also only made up about 10% of the Templar order, which is funny because everyone thinks of the order as just being made up of like knights alone. Totally not the case. Knights also had four horses each and two squires. The squires, though, were not a part of the order. Sergeants were people who wanted to be knights but could not due to their low birth class. Their words, not mine. Uh, they were still able to provide essential services, though, such as being blacksmiths, builders, and managing uh, Templar finances. The sergeants wore black or brown. The third class were the chaplains, who tended to the spiritual needs of their brethren. Speaking of brethren, it was not Templar rule, but it later became normal for members of the order to wear long and prominent beards. In about 1240, Alberic of Trois-Fontaines, who was a medieval chronicler, described the Templars as an order of the bearded brethren, which honestly sounds like an evil tech bro conference. Hey man, welcome to the order of the bearded brethren. Uh, we're all bad tippers and drive Teslas. Party on. They also had a grand master who was appointed for life and oversaw affairs in both the East and the West. Grandmasters were able to abdicate, but this was pretty rare, and many of them lost their lives on the battlefield. Every time I hear Grandmaster, I just think of Jeff Goldblum uh, in Thor Ragnarok, which is the best Marvel movie ever. Well, top three. Templar communities across Europe became kind of like banks for cash and valuables. Uh, the order had their own cash reserves, which were, uh, from as early as 1130, put to good use in the form of interest-gaining loans. Many traveling pilgrims would use Templar services to deposit their valuables at one Templar station and pick it up when once they reached the Holy Land. Oh, uh, uh, so before... Let's say a pilgrim is going to a local Templar station. Uh, they deposit their goods and such. And uh, after they do that, the Templar bank would give them like a receipt of what they deposited and would collect a small fee, kind of like a typical bank would. And then you would take that receipt, that document they gave you. And once you made it to the Holy Land, you go to um, you go to a Templar station there and you pick up your money. Citizens could also hold an existing account with the Templars, paying in regular deposits and arranging for the Templars to pay out uh, on behalf of the account holder. Now, I could see how starting a banking system within the order had high appeal. This organization that had the reputation of being good and kindly, and most importantly to the general medieval European public, Christian, appeared very trustworthy to those uh, needing to secure their funds. Like, I get it, and plus, they had their own money, they needed to move and manage it. 
by the thirteenth century the templars had become such trusted bankers that the kings of france and other nobles kept their treasuries with the order it is believed that it was the templar order who provided funds for eleanor of aquitaine and her first husband louis the uh, oh my god what the f was his name uh, louis the seventh when they went on crusade the templars would continue to lend money to rulers and thus became an important piece in the financial structure of late medieval Europe. This would be one of their many downfalls. To quote Mabrak from The Last Unicorn, You have let your doom in by the front door, but it will not depart that way. In the mid-twelfth century, things began to shift in the Crusades. Okay, I'm going to see if I can get this name right. Salahuddin or his western name, Saladin, had united the Islamic world in a defense for the Holy Land. Without doing too much research on uh, Saladin, uh, not out of lack, of lack of interest, but his history is very, very war-heavy, and you guys know that that is not my jam. But what I can tell you is he was a super fierce leader, one that Christian monarchs and historians would later praise for being very chivalrous. Richard I is said to have called him the bravest and most powerful leader in the Islamic world. And I have it on pretty good authority. I heard a legit certified educated medieval historian say that they think that Richard might have had a crush on Saladin, and I like to imagine that he did. I like to imagine that it was a mutual feeling. Um, but, you know, Richard was queer, but he was also a really horrible person. So he's definitely not ever invited to drag brunch. Saladin did take the Templars pretty seriously, though, whenever he was in battle. The Templars were incredibly skilled and fearless warriors. Anytime a battle took place, they were always at the, like, head of the line, head of the battle line. I don't know what it's called. I'm not a big war person. Head of the cavalry. There we go. But Saladin knew, you know, you got to break through the, that pesky Templar guard and the Templar crowd, and then you might have a chance at winning the battle. And he, he won a battle. At the Battle of Hattin, Jerusalem was recaptured by Muslim forces, led by Saladin in 1187. Because of this, the Templars had to move their main headquarters out of the Holy Land. They moved to the seaport city of Acre, I think it's Acre or Acre, uh, it's in northern Israel, and stayed there for about a century. It was lost in 1291, followed by their main headquarters in modern-day Syria. They tried to remain close-ish by moving their headquarters to the island of Cyprus, but this was a very short-lived move. Uh, they lost the island in 1302 to the uh, Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt. Uh, thus losing crusader control in the Holy Land entirely. Prior to the loss of control of Jerusalem, the Templars were experiencing a shift in mood and reputation. They were constantly at odds with other Christian orders, and there was resentment throughout Europe. See, the Templars had gotten a bit of an ego since they had no one to answer to but the Pope. Thus, there were a lot of bullies in the order. Members of the order were known to bully their ecclesiastical neighbors and clergies that the Templars did not really approve of, and uh, they could easily remove them. 
So if the Templar didn't like you, but you'd been a clergy somewhere for a while, they could be like, um, I don't like, uh, Yosef over here and Yosef needs to get the F out of my sight. And that's basically what they were, they were like, they were like bullies. And of course they could also punish or push out bishops. Like it wasn't just limited to clergies. They could kind of push out anybody, um, they didn't like, and they could give sacraments to people that had originally been excommunicated by the church. Also, French winemakers had a lot of beef with the Templars. Like, the Templars had their own vineyards and could sell their wine at market value and be exempt from paying taxes because uh, the Pope was like, hey, these guys don't have to pay taxes. And, OMG, winemakers were pissed. And they messed with the ports, too. Uh, the Templars had their own Templar fleets, which provided passages for pilgrims to the Holy Land. And uh, naval powers in the Mediterranean were not happy about this and, at, like, at all, and many seaside merchants lost money. Also, their code was like barely being followed. Their original rules were like, you can't wear fancy clothing and you gotta eat in silence. Yet some of them were like wearing finery and holding feast. And Templars were also not allowed to go hunting, uh, yet naughty Templars partook in hunting all the time. Really, people were just getting sick of their, like, holier-than-thou attitudes, and depending on the area, many became just, like, warrior aristocracy. So, like, imagine, like, yacht boys or something, and they have, like, this infinite power and can kill you. I mean, I guess that's not really much of a stretch, but, you know, it, it's scary and annoying. Point being, some of the Templars were just behaving badly. Uh, not as badly as uh, they would be accused of, but they were, well, we don't know, um, but they were behaving badly. Thus, as thoughts and feelings were beginning to waver, that is when Frenchy Le Fuckwad, Philip IV, comes in. Philip IV was a member of the French royal house of Capet. They ruled France from 987 to 1328. Philip was born between April and June of 1268. He was also known as Philip the Fair, not because he was a just ruler, but because he was blonde and said to have been quite handsome. He was also referred to as the Iron King due to his cold, emotionless state of mind. An opponent of his, uh, Bernard Sasset, Bishop of Pommier, said of him that he is neither man nor beast. He is a statue. As a child, Philip experienced a lot of death before he was five. His mother had died on campaign when he was about two years old, as did his grandfather that same year, who was the current king at the time of his birth. His father remarried a woman named Marie of Brabant, I think, and shortly after the marriage, uh, Philip's older brother and heir apparent, Louis, died under mysterious circumstances at the age of 12. Rumor has it that Louis was poisoned by their stepmother, and I can't find concrete evidence to prove that this was a legit thing that she did uh, poison him, but a lot of people believed it, so let's go ahead and have fun with it and say, yeah, she poisoned a 12-year-old. I mean, because I think there's also why the rumors were probably so strong about it, too, is there was, like, no sign of fever recorded, no sign of illness, no, like, mention of an accident. Like, they just say he died at 12 under mysterious circumstances, and that mysterious circumstance could be poison.
Jumping forward to Philip's adolescence, he became obsessed with his grandfather, Louis IX, who was also Saint Louis. I mentioned him before in a past episode. Oh, I think it was the one on the madness of Charles VI and Henry VI. And um, I believe part of that, their mental illness came from generational trauma. But anyway, Saint Louis, his mom, when he was about, I want to say like 10 or 12 years old, uh, told him that she'd rather him be dead than be a sinner. So yeah, total trauma galore. And Louis was also a big anti-Semite who burned 12,000 plus Jewish texts during his reign. I don't know how he became a fucking saint, but here we are. Philip idolized Louis and wanted to exact standards of rulership and admired his saintly virtues. Philip became convinced that it was his God-given duty to attain the lofty goals of his grandfather and then some. Philip also dreamed of one day having complete and total control over both Templars and Hospitallers and combining them to make one giant army for him. And he wanted to send that giant army to the Middle East and conquer it and become its emperor. Like, this guy was a fucking megalomaniac. He was ridiculous and dangerous. Philip became king of France at the age of 16 and quickly married his childhood sweetheart. This isn't cute. I think his wife Joan of Navarre was raised in their court from the age of two till she was meant to become a child bride at 12. So I don't know if they were raised together together um, because I know that girls typically were educated different or separately from boys. And so, but they were at least raised together. They were like children together. Uh, which is kind of gross because it kind of sounds like he married his sister, but whatever. Um, and Philip became like a big warmonger pretty quickly, and he spent extravagantly and recklessly. Philip made war with almost all of his neighbors, including Aragon, England, and Flanders. These wars drove the French government into fiscal deficits. The war with Aragon is something he inherited with his father's passing, which... What a terrible inheritance. Like, am I right? Like, hey, kid, continue my bullshit for me, okay? Bye. The war had already cost France millions of livres, which uh, were like a medieval coin, you know, medieval French coin. I think they call them livre tournai. I think that's how you say it. So anyway, lots of cash. Um, Philip would be paying back loans for that war until, I believe, 1306 and maybe beyond. The dates were a little confusing there. And the wars with England and Flanders were about the same in the millions area. Uh, he just really bad with money and a warmonger and just couldn't stop with his military spending. Philip borrowed from Jewish lenders, Lombard merchants, and the Knights Templar to pay for his wars. By 1295, the government was in such debt that Philip had no choice but to borrow even more and debase the currency by reducing its silver content. This led to a near disappearance of silver from France by 1301. The devaluation was socially devastating. It was accompanied by a dramatic inflation that damaged the real incomes of the creditors, such as the aristocracy and the church, who received a weaker currency in return for the loans they had issued in a stronger currency. The lower classes did not benefit from the devaluation, as the high inflation uh, ate into the purchasing power of their money. The result was social unrest. 
by the 22nd of August, 1303, this practice led to a two-thirds loss in the value of the French currency. Eventually, this led to riots. One in particular happened on the 30th of December, 1306, in Paris, that had forced Philip to briefly seek refuge in the Paris Temple, a headquarters of the Knights Templar. This act of refuge would take place uh, less than one year prior to the Templar's arrest. Rather than accept that he was a shitty ruler, uh, Philip started pointing the finger at other people for his wrongful actions. Philip didn't want to take responsibility for his fuck-ups, and he certainly didn't intend on paying what he owed. On July 22, 1306, Philip ordered the expulsion of the Jews, and he confiscated their property and values. Everything they left behind was now property of the crown. Anyone with existing loans from Jewish providers were now required to pay what they owed to the crown. According to two sources, the citizens of Paris hated this, as the crown debt collectors were never honest about what was actually owed, and harassed citizens for additional unnecessary payments. Oh, I forgot to add, uh, Philip also ordered the arrest of Lombard merchants, who had earlier made him extensive loans on the pledge of repayment from future taxations. The Lombards also had their assets seized and by, seized by government agents and the crown. The assets from the Lombards and the Jews covered some of Philip's debts, but he needed more money. Okay, a really brief history on the changing popes at this time. So let me see if I get this right. Uh, at the time of Philip's succession, so when he first became king, uh, the current pope at the time was uh, Boniface VIII, uh, but like everyone else, eventually these two got into a conflict. Uh, in 1296, Philip wanted to reinforce taxes on the clergy while also barring them from administration of the law. This resulted in Philip's excommunication. As a result, Philip sent in his troops including his favorite minister, a real wicked dude named Guillaume de Nogara, and attacked the Pope's residence. Boniface was held for three days and repeatedly abused. Boniface was released, but he died pretty soon after his abduction, and I don't think he died from his wounds from being abused, uh, but I didn't find any mention of how he passed away, but I know he passed away pretty quickly after that incident. The next pope in line was Benedict XI, who only served a year till his death, and then a new French pope came into the picture, Clement V, who was either related to Philip somehow, or he was raised with Philip. Now, the Templars only answered to the pope, but when the pope is BFF with the man who wants to kill you, well, sorry guys, you're fucked. As stated earlier, popularity with the Crusades and thus with the Templars had de decreased. Philip, of course, picked up on this resentment and he made his moves on the Templars. Money was like was likely the main motive for Philip, and I personally believe it was the main motive for Philip, but there were other theories of concern about this. There was a perceived heresy, which makes sense because remember he was like obsessed with his trauma religious crazed granddad, so perhaps he truly believed like how their behavior, how they behaved was sinful. And there's also the assertion of French control over an already weakened papacy. Uh, 
and recent studies emphasize the political and religious motivations of Philip and his ministers. It seems that with the discovery and repression of the Templars, heresy, uh, the Capetian monarchy, claimed for itself the mystic foundations of the papal theocracy. The Temple case was the last step of a process of appropriating these foundations, which had begun with the Franco-Papal rift uh, at the time of Boniface VIII, which this perfectly makes sense, like it's totally in line with this. Uh, being the ultimate defender of the Catholic faith, the Capetian king was invested with uh, a Christ-like function that put him above the Pope. What was at stake in the Templars' trial, then, was the establishment of a royal theocracy. So, yes, I believe that the main goal was Philip wanted their money and their power. And this makes sense with his original dream that I told you about, where he was like, uh, Ah, God, I have dreams of just owning the Holy Land and being emperor. So this 100% is accurate. On Friday the 13th, October of 1307, Philip IV, beloved dumb daddy of Isabella of France, ordered the arrest of all Templars in France. Claims had been made that during Templar admissions ceremonies, recruits were forced to spit on the cross, deny Christ, and engage in indecent kissing with each other. They were also accused of worshipping false idols and having homosexual sex. You guys, these charges were insane. Like, I'll get more into it, trust me. Like, these allegations were highly politicized, and there was no real concrete evidence that any of this was happening. The Templars were also charged with numerous, uh, numerous other offenses, uh, such as financial corruption, fraud, and secrecy. The many accused confessed to these false claims under intense torture. I couldn't find any details on what kind of torture they endured, and I know torture techniques, they, like, varied on region and varied on century, and so I'm not 100% sure what they went through, but I do know it was bad enough for these men to confess to just the most bananas accusations. One of them confessed that, Ah, Raymond, 21 years old, admit that I have spat three times on the cross, but only from my mouth and not from my heart. Okay, let me tell you guys about these, like, bananas accusations. I'm going to go into a bit more detail about them because they're just really wild. The Templars were accused of worshipping Baphomet, which is this uh, goat-headed deity that has since been a figure associated with the occult. It is basically like Satan. Like, think of... Think of Black Philip from The Witch. They were accused of worshipping a mummified severed head that they had recovered while they were in the Holy Land. Okay. Um, they worshipped a giant cat or a cat with three heads. They were accused of communicating with the devil via cats. And one eyewitness claimed that they saw a Templar employee petting a cat and thus they were communicating with Satan. Oh, and uh, that upon initiation into the order, new Templars were kissed on the mouth, the navel, the stomach, the buttocks, and the spine. And their final act of initiation was that the knights uh, would take turns having sex with a new pledge. 
They were also said to have roasted infants alive and feasted on their flesh. And this one story is my favorite in particular. Uh, one of the knights fell in love with a woman, which naughty, naughty, you're not supposed to talk to women. And uh, another knight got really jealous of this and he killed the woman. Well, that knight was so like, you know, just racked with grief that he snuck into his dead lover's crypt and he had sex with her corpse. And thus the corpse got pregnant and the preg the baby came to full term and there was just like this demon baby living within the Templar order. Fucking nuts. My God, guys. I think that's my favorite story or that they worshipped a giant cat and then participated in gay orgies. Now, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of these accusations are like, you know, homophobic uh, because medieval Europe was violently homophobic uh, with the church deeming any non-reproductive sex a sodomy. Committing acts of sodomy or homosexuality was kind of something everybody agreed like agreed on that if somebody were to do that that they deserve to be disgraced and even face death. By involving the accusation of homosexual acts the church could get their hands messy in this scandal as well. Philip was not alone in his attempted squashing of the Templars. The ordinary clergy of France had been jealous of the order's rites of burial which took money away from local churches. Thus, the political and religious establishments uh, joined together with the aim of destroying the Templars. As for Pope Clement V, he totally let Philip arrest the Templars, yet he also told Philip that the Templars should have fair trials, and I believe he was against the torture as well, but Philip completely ignored all of this. So Philip, as stated earlier, was the father to Isabella of France, who was the wife of Edward II, yes, the gay king from Braveheart. Philip wrote to monarchs in Europe to turn over their Templars and that they had committed the worst crimes. Edward told Philip, like, hey, listen, I don't believe you. Thus, Edward did not comply with this order. Rather, he wrote to the kings in Portugal, Aragon, Castile, and Sicily, denouncing the king of France's accusations. Edward even reached out to the Pope, asking him to intervene to stop the arrest, to which Clement responded with an order telling him to arrest all Templars in England. Instead of arresting them on the spot, Edward sent like a warning to the Templars, stating that, um, of course, this is not verbatim. Uh, so he was like, so in three weeks, I have to arrest you guys because you've been accused of this and that. And therefore, on this date, three weeks from now, you will be arrested. Don't do anything silly like, oh, uh, I don't know, get your affairs in order or leave the country. Wink, wink. Edward was not a great king in the eyes of many, and his friend Hugh Dispenser was probably a rapist, among other things, but he gets a few brownie points for this move, and, of course, for being a famous gay. Portuguese king Dennis I also refused to pursue and punish the Templars in his realm. Instead, he had the Templars change their name to uh, the Order of Christ and also uh, the Supreme Order of Christ and the Holy See. A total of 54 men from the Templars were burned at the stake in 1310, most of which were not even knights, but people employed with the Templar, like 
think, uh, think about the essential workers of the Templar. That's who they burned. The fate of the entire order was decided in 1311 at the Council of Vienne. Investigations carried out in the previous three years into the order's affairs all across Europe. Confessions likely acquired through torture were uneven in every region. Most of the knights who confessed under duress were from France and Italy. The Pope officially declared the order terminated on April 3rd, 1312. And, okay, the reason for the termination is, get this, having a bad reputation. Uh, there was never any physical evidence produced in regards to any of the accusations. In 1314, the Grand Master of the Order, Jacques de Molay and Geoffroy de Charnay, who was a teacher within the Templar Order, retracted their confessions. Both men were declared guilty of being relapsed heretics, and they were sentenced to burn alive at the stake on March 18, 1314. De Molay asked to be tied in such a way that he could face Notre Dame Cathedral and hold his hands together in prayer. According to legend, and I hope this is true, he called out from the flames that both Pope Clement and King Philip would soon meet him before God. Okay, I got two sources saying that he, uh, that this was actually recorded at his execution. I don't know if those sources are legit or not, but they are sources. So this is what he is recorded to have said from the flames. God knows who is wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death. Pope Clement died one month after their murders, and King Philip died of a stroke while hunting by the end of that same year. He was only 46. Therefore, it is entirely possible that de Molay said that and put like a sort of hex on them. I mean, hey, they said he worshipped like that goat-headed deity, so maybe they did. You never know. 1314 was the same year the Tour de Nel scandal happened. To briefly summarize, Philip's two sons' wives were cheating on them with Norman knights. The only reason this was found out was because at a dinner party, Isabella of France noticed that the two knights carried two purses that she had personally gifted to her sisters-in-law. Knowing exactly who her daddy was and what she was doing, she blabbed to Philip. The women were imprisoned for life, and the guys tortured and killed. So the punishment for this act was so severe because adultery within a royal line was, like, really, really bad, especially if you were a woman. Like, men could fuck around as much as they want, but women, no, you absolutely can't. Uh, because if you were to get pregnant with, like, some rando peasant's child, they would be in line for the throne, thus ruining the bloodline. It's a whole, like, evil fucked up thing that is, like, quoted in the crown about blood purity and the importance of blood purity. It's really gross. Uh, anyway, that was Philip's final act as a French fuckwad. Uh, so could, I know you're thinking, could the cheating couples be more subtle? I mean, yeah, totally. But could Isabella have just minded her own damn business? Also, yes. Okay, forgot to mention this. So when Jacques de Molay cursed Philip, he didn't just curse Philip, I guess. Uh, he cursed his whole line because uh, Philip had three sons and they all reached adulthood and became kings of France. However, none of them survived and none of them had offspring. Thus, the um, 
the throne went to his daughter Isabella's son, Edward III of England. And this spiraled into a whole ugly thing called the Hundred Years' War. So Philip definitely got his, like, karmic retribution. The remaining knights in Europe either changed professions entirely, joined another Christian military order, were able to get jobs with Knights Hospitaller, and maybe some never healed from being constantly on the run. Uh, Many of the Templar buildings still exist today and are visited by people throughout the world. There is also a real disgusting aspect of Templar history about, uh, in regards to white supremacy, like, everyone puke in unison. Templar historian Dan Jones discussed in a Smithsonian article I read about Templar iconography with European neo-fascist. The Norwegian mass murderer Anders Bervik claimed to be a Templar, and Knights Templar International is an online network that connects far-right activists, particularly in Britain. In Mexico, a drug cartel called Los Caballeros Templarios has borrowed from the Templar symbolism to create its own brand and code of honor. Now, you might hear Mexico and not associate that with white supremacy, but that is a mistake. Mexico has many violent attitudes towards indigenous and black people. There are just, uh, you know, Mexico is just another colonial state, as almost everywhere else in the world is. So, of course, they struggle with issues of white supremacy. I suppose the appeal to racist is, um, in regards to the Templars with these organizations, is both just a blend of history and myth and whatever bullshit they want to believe. Despite popular belief, the Freemasons were not descended from Knights Templar. They may have adopted some aspects of Templar culture, but they are not a continuum of the Templars. There is not a secret Templar treasure buried somewhere in America, either. I feel like that was hinted at in um, National Treasure, and the Founding Fathers knew that. Um, Like, let's get this straight. Founding Fathers didn't know anything, and Ben Franklin was a hoe. No shade of hose, he was just a hoe. On the subject of movie fiction, back to our personal favorite, The Da Vinci Code. So in that film, spoiler alert, the Templars were protecting the royal bloodline, i.e. the blood, the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus and Mary Magdalene were getting it on and had a daughter. Mary moved to France with that child, and that bloodline was then uh, the, I can't, I can never say this word, the Merovingian kings of France. Like, okay, there, there's a lot wrong here, but to start, my issue is not with Jesus having a potential bloodline. I would never begrudge him uh, for having known physical intimacy, nor should anyone. Uh, my problem is with Jesus being the ancestor of a line of kings, and that only feeds into the bullshit of monarchy being divine, and therefore entitled to power. It's also weird because Dan Brown fails to mention that Philip IV, a French king, murdered the Templars. He had assistance with the church, but it was ultimately like his jam. Like he wanted them gone more than anybody. And so it's interesting that he was like, oh, Jesus is the ancestor of these kings. But also the French king was murdery as hell. I don't know. I know it's fiction. I get it. Uh, Hey, I love historical fiction. I think there's some fantastic 
historical fiction out there. Like, don't get me wrong. Fiction can be very entertaining and I love it, but folks really ate that story up. Like, so final words on that? No, the Templars were not protecting any sort of bloodline and monarchs are absolutely not descended from Jesus. The Templars also did not protect the Shroud of Turin, nor the Holy Grail. The association with the Holy Grail comes from a 12th century fiction writer, Wolfram von Eisenbach's Parsifal, in which he calls the knights guarding the Grail Kingdom Templisian, and thus folks associate that with the Templars. Parsifal was also one of uh, Bavarian queer mystery Ludwig II's favorite stories, and composer Richard Wagner based his opera on that text. Richard Wagner, though, was also an anti-Semite and an all-around horrible person who became, like, the Nazi party's favorite composer. The Nazis already believed they were descended from, like, Teutonic Knights or whatever, and likely perpetuated the Templar Holy Grail myth, thus trying to affirm that they are indeed... We are the masters. I believe during the time of the Crusades, Europe was really trying to hype up, hype the people up like they were actually doing good and making strides to protect the Holy Land, that their efforts, uh, that their efforts made were not material gain, and that those in the East seek to do bad against them. It's the same exact story nearly a thousand years later being told. It's so boring. Please come up with a new narrative. So, my final thoughts. Uh, the Templars were not the main engineers of the Crusades, but they were definitely, like, willing participants. Now, were there Templars that were, like, that did behave badly and did terrible things? Uh, 100% sure. Yeah, totally. But did they commit any of the crimes that they were accused of? Not bloody likely. I mean, I don't think there is a giant cat that people worship or a three-headed cat, and I don't think you know, a corpse is able to produce a baby. So yeah, I'm going to say no, that part of it isn't true. Were some of them homosexual? Probably. I mean, it's an order of men. You can't tell me that. Um, at one time, I think the Templars had employed thousands and thousands of people. You can't tell me that there weren't gay people in that order. You can't. You would just be a liar. And as far as our legacy with the Crusades, I think that the I, there's like a lot of things that came from the Crusades as far as like what we have today. And one of the most interesting things to me was uh, we have yellow roses because of the Crusades. I guess the original rose or the original yellow rose came from Turkey and the Europeans loved it, and they were like, oh my god, we're going to bring these home, and we're going to plant them, and they're going to be gorgeous. And they were right. Uh, they brought them uh, back to the West, and ever since then, we've all loved yellow roses. So I guess there's that. And um, marzipan. So I think that does it for the Templars. I'm going to end there. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode and you aren't mad at me that I don't like the Templars or the Crusades. Um, I think if you are mad, uh, you probably would have quit this episode a long time ago, which, you know, that's, that's your prerogative. Um, I meant this podcast to be a lot shorter, uh, but you know, once I start talking and once I start researching, I kind of can't stop. Uh, so 
Yeah, and I had quite a bit of sources for this episode, too. I'm going to go ahead and share them with you right now. For a podcast, I listened to a True Crime Medieval episode on the Knights Templar and the History of Witchcraft, which is a really cool podcast. I hadn't listened to it before, uh, but definitely check that out. Oh, History Unplugged is also a really good podcast. Uh, There's an episode I listened to, uh, The Crusades, from both Arab and European Perspectives. Uh, that's only about an hour long. I think it could have been a little bit longer and still have been like really informative and not like too dense. And, but that one was a really good one. It just gives more perspective. Um, and it's also by Dan Jones, who was my, were my ref, was my reference for the, uh, white supremacist as far as like that tie with the Templars. And he does talk about that a bit in that podcast. For books, I skimmed through Malcolm Barber's, uh, Trial of the Templars And that is a really, really good book uh, if you want to do some additional reading on it. I uh, was on a time crunch, so I did not finish the whole thing, but I did skim through it. And, uh, well, I downloaded it online, so I skimmed on my phone. Um, But that was was pretty good. Uh, I would definitely recommend that if you are curious and would like to read a book. For my websites, I checked out smithsonian.com, worldhistory.com, crusaderkingdoms.com and National Geographic. And I had to be really careful doing my research online. So, because I didn't want to end up on a white supremacist site. So, uh, but I didn't. Those are legit sources. If you'd like to reach out and follow me, support me on social media, you can find me at Finding History Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I also have a blog that I am really terrible at updating, uh, where I post sources, episode links, and some additional information, and that is findinghistory.blogspot.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave me a review. I think you can do so on Apple and Google, and I would really appreciate that because I think that helps my audience grow. So if you like me, hit me up. Thank you so much for listening. Until we meet again, I hope you eat a lot of candy tonight and watch something really scary. Have the happiest of Halloweens. Bye-bye.